championship on the line right here. He's going for the corner. He's got it. Welcome to 4th and 5, your Longhorn Nation podcast. I'm your host, Olbazer, and today, unfortunately, I'm not joined by Darius Terrell. He had to take a week off due to his duties as a coach. But I'll go ahead and take the reins here and give y'all a few quick thoughts on Oklahoma. I know what happened two weeks ago. Probably people want to move on to the next game and just act like it didn't happen, but it happened, so let's, we'll give it a few quick thoughts on it. And then I'll bring on Sam Bradshaw of Sikkim365, to talk about the Baylor Bears and what the Bears are bringing to Austin this week. But y'all, I mean, I got to be honest with you guys. I'm exhausted. I am exhausted and a bit burnt out. And really, that's the reason we didn't have a show last week. I'm sorry about that. But, you know, I just, I'm starting to lose the want to at this point. Like the rest of the Longhorn Nation, my hopes have been brought sky high way too many times and then eventually let down. And it's not like a feather fall let down. It's like a grand piano. It's huge and it's big and it's something you really can't ignore. And I really think that my game day experience illustrates this quite well, where with five minutes left, Texas is down 14 points. Sam throws a pick in the end zone. Everybody realizes on the Texas side how this game is probably over. My family, we walk out. We're walking out the fairgrounds, and my brother and I can't help ourselves watching the game on ESPN on our phone, just following the drive, seeing how Texas is going to lose. And then Texas starts to come back. OU's defense starts to falter, and Texas' offense seems to be unstoppable with the tempo. And Texas starts coming back. They score a touchdown. They have two you have three minutes to stop Oklahoma, maybe get themselves a drive and have a chance. So we're thinking, oh, well, well, maybe we can make it and watch the game. And if it does go into overtime in some unlikely way, we can maybe sneak our way back into the fairgrounds and get into the stadium. Well, I we did. We talked our way past the guards to outside the gates. In, well, really inside the gates. They had a little... Satellite TV, mini satellite TV, and a bunch of Texas fans, everybody who's leaving the stadium, is watching the game on this little satellite TV outside the gate. And it's just insane, right? Everybody watched the game. That in comeback was just crazy. And I honestly, I didn't realize that Keontae Ingram caught the last touchdown until a day afterwards. Because with 10 seconds left, Sam Ellinger throws the ball. I don't know where it goes, but all you hear is the cannon and all the Texas fans start running back to the stadium. Running. It's like a herd of Texas fans running back. And most people got into the stadium somehow. We found a a nice person at the gate who let us back through. But then you watch that four quarters back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the ups and downs. And you're really, as Longhorn fans, were just a lot more excited than Oklahoma fans at that point. Longhorn fans had just so had so much momentum, had so much excitement because of what had just happened. The momentum was with Texas. And then you get crushed a second time in one day. A second time. And the worst part about it is most things that happened in that game were avoidable. 
also on top of that, you're looking at this season and really the past four years. And Sam Ellinger, man, that dude is a warrior. He is living every Longhorn fan's dream and he is doing it well. And it just sucks, sucks the life out of you to see him being wasted during his time in Burnt Orange. But despite all this, despite all this, I don't think the past two games mean the end for Tom Herman. I can't tell if I just haven't passed that first stage of grief yet. But unlike most fans, I'm still waffling on Tom Herman. I don't think I'm 100% done with him yet. Obviously, in year four, he has to do better. But there are some reasons why I look at this season so far and I'm like, okay, I can't be done with Tom Herman yet. I feel like I'm bitter white guy with Shaka Smart where it's just going to take until, you know, he's on his deathbed for me to say, okay, yeah, he's done. First off, you know, I'm not personally comfortable or on board yet with pulling the plug on three coaches over the course of less than a decade. I just don't feel like that is a very good move for the stability of any program, really. That much change in that short of amount of time just doesn't sit well with me. And all the coaching change in between. Now, you might look at that as a reason to make another change, but... Texas fans have gotten a reputation for being impatient with a coach. Now, there are reasons to be impatient. Don't get me wrong, but I don't, at this point, I don't know if I can really board the get rid of Tom Herman train yet. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to jump to the conclusion. I want to wait and see it out. And then once I have all the data, once I really know, that's when I want to make my decision. Because if you do call it quits and you don't get Urban Meyer, you're sort of left in a position where, hey, you have to get Franklin or you're left between a rock and a hard place. You know, I'm, I'm more in a wait and see mode here. And also, on top of that, the Big 12 is pretty weak this year. And, and again, another double-edged sword because it means that if Texas were where it should be in year four, it should have been a cakewalk season. At the same time, it means that despite having two losses, Texas still has a chance to make the Big 12 championship. And you know, look no further than 2018 where Texas lost to Oklahoma State and West Virginia in back-to-back weeks, but still made the Big 12 championship, right? Everybody thought that season was lost at that point. And then Iowa State happened and Texas made their way back into the championship and all was forgiven, almost. So I can imagine a team this year in this Big 12 with three conference losses and still making it to the Big 12 championship because I look at Iowa State, I look at Kansas State, and I am just not impressed and I am not convinced that those two teams are really the top two teams or West Virginia, who's 2-1, and one, is going to have two losses at the end of the season. And even Oklahoma probably will drop one. If Texas can lose only one game, they still have a pretty good shot at making the Big 12 championship, you know, despite everything, despite everything. And another layer to this flapjack, Herman got a raw deal this past offseason. You know, he did the right thing of getting rid of the assistants. Now, he was probably a year late in doing so, but he did it. And that's more than Charlie Strong could say. Then he gets slammed by the coronavirus. And I know like this sounds like excuse making. And it is kind of in part, but it's also 
I see as a potential valid reason to maybe take a step back here because, because yes, I know that everybody got hit hard by COVID, but a major staff identity change got stunted right when he needed to, to really take off. And this is especially true for the defensive side of the ball. You know, I think despite the common narrative, Chris Ash has done pretty well with what he has been given. Obviously, there are some things that need to be cleaned up, but I think he basically changed the entire defense, changed the personnel where people are playing altogether. You know, you look at these defensive linemen, they're made for three, four defensive line, and they're playing four, three. You look at the linebacker crew, there's there was nothing there. And you look at the cornerbacks, and Texas had a bunch of trouble last year. And now it's a completely different defense. And honestly, it's improved. It has improved, despite not having a time to really install it. Right? It's There's a reason that they're missing tackles left and right. And there's a reason why sometimes mistakes are made when they're trying to put into practice something that they haven't even practiced. Yes, there are times like the third quarter drive against Oklahoma that took eight minutes off the clock. But you also look at it and say, Texas held OU to 31 points when OU started two drives inside the end zone. And also on the other side of the ball, if you're Herman, how are you going to relinquish the offense to a coordinator who has not yet had time to really install his philosophy? How are you going to hand over the keys to a guy who really hasn't had time to understand what, what the car is? It's really difficult situation that Tom Hearn was put in right when he needed a good season. It's rough, and I empathize with the situation that he was put in. However, on the other side of this, there are certain things that are just unforgivable from a coach in his fourth year. Really, there are three things that have gotten really grating on myself and most of the Texas fan base from what I can tell, and the first of which is the discipline issues, right? There are so many games, both games of the past two weeks could have been won, and many in the past could have been won if Texas did not commit so many penalties and so many boneheaded mistakes, right? You know, not just the penalties. You look at Keontae Ingram reaching the ball over from three yards out. You probably have a chance to win that game if Keontae Ingram doesn't do that. And you just can't come into games, much less the Red River shootout, and play as sloppy as you have over the past two to three to four years. You can't have senior leaders making stupid mental mistakes that they have, like Derek Kerstetter pushing a guy in the back when you're on the one-yard line after the play and costing you four points that could have won you the game at the end of the game. And too many times it just costs Texas the game. And sometimes you can't avoid the penalties. Like when you have the officiating crew that you had against TCU last week. That's something you can't avoid. That TCU officiating crew was just atrocious for both sides. However, Texas is the 11th most penalized team in the country this year, the 18th last year, and the 6th in 2018. While you can probably also point to this and say that some of these penalties may be due to a lack of the offseason while installing a new offense, defense, and special teams, this still falls on Tom Herman. And as I've pointed out, it's been a common theme throughout his tenure. This lack of discipline, and even beyond the penalties, is a direct reflection of the coaching staff. You know, Tom Herman came in saying that he had such attention to detail. There's the P charts and everything, but it doesn't seem like it has translated. The second thing, 
Has he won yet with his own guys? Now, honestly, Sam Bradshaw really brought this up to me before recording, and Sam Bradshaw did a wonderful job of explaining this, so I'll let him explain it later on in the show in his own words. But it's not hard to see, and it really boils down to the seasons that Tom Herman did very well in. He didn't do it with his own players, and now that he has his own players, you looked at last year and you said, okay, well, they're young, and so we'll wait till they grow a year and you have seniority on the offensive line, quarterback, running back room, and defense. And then TCU and Oklahoma happen. The discipline issues don't leave, and it looks like you're not doing a good job evaluating or developing. It's an issue, and it's really made the fact that Tom Herman is in his sixth full season as a head coach quite apparent. Quite apparent because... He is learning, again, on the job. It's costing Texas. It's costing Texas. Lastly, the narrative of stubbornness has proven valid at this point. You have to win with a team you have. And Texas, this year, as a team, has been its most effective when going quick. I guess you can also look at the 2017 team, and that was a pretty early indicator when Tom Herman was forcing 11 personnel and 12 personnel without tight ends. Or last year as well. It's one thing that Greg Davis did so well when he was at Texas and something that Longhorn fans really didn't appreciate about him is he took what he had on the roster and he worked with it. Tom Herman is trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. He doesn't want to leave this pro spread offense until it's the fourth quarter and he's down by 14 points and he can no longer afford to be inflexible. Even after the game, he was this close, this close to really putting two and two together. Saying, and it's a quote, it's a shame we have to go fast on offense to be effective. Maybe we turn into one of those teams that tries to win games by 65 or 55 points, but that's not what I envision, and I don't think that's what anybody envisions around here. We've got to find a way to be able to, at a normal tempo, sustain drives and stay ahead of the chains. We haven't done that here in the last couple weeks. Well, Tom, it shouldn't be a shame to go slow. It shouldn't be a shame. Look at where you are. Welcome to the Big 12. You've been beaten multiple times over the past four years by that specific philosophy. But he's also right. You can't go 100% tempo all the time, but perhaps you speed up things. You know, you don't wait until you're down by 14 points with three minutes left to go up tempo. Perhaps, perhaps... You get a 14-point lead first, and then you slow down. Get that first 14 points in the first half. Then you sail, boosting tempo when you need it. The inflexibility that Tom Herman has shown beyond that, just that, that's one specific example, but the inflexibility at Texas to learn, you know, you've been talking about turtling and all this certain stuff that you would hope he would learn and learn from. He just hasn't seemed to get it. Really, it's all these things that have been playing in my head. And it's a war that has been playing in my head and really has been won by the kick Tom Herman outside for most fans and most writers. But there are still a few things that I'm holding on to probably that's, you know, it's probably hope. I just can't get rid of it. That it's not done yet. It isn't done yet. There's still a season to go. There is still a team, and despite you know the rocky bye week, the 
story of a divided locker room that was really boosted by the boosters and other sites out there. It's a bunch of baloney, man. It's not real. The locker room, you know, people want you to think the locker room is the new civil war, but really it's not fractured. It's depressed, but it's not fractured. This team has been there before in the past. We'll see if Tom Herman can put it together or if he'll fall flat on his face. But I think on that note, let's go ahead and take a look at Baylor here and bring on Sam Bradshaw of Sikkim365. He does their X's and O's and their stats, and it's wonderful to have him. Sam, how you doing, man? How's it going? It's going good. Really excited to finally see Baylor play after <laughs> what feels like a time period off similar to a bowl game. <laughs> man, it's been weeks Y'all only had two games over a possibility of five. It's been an insane year for y'all. Right. You were expecting to uh, open the season against Louisiana Tech after the initial schedule changes that everybody went went under. And then, of course, a hurricane breaks down Louisiana Tech, who had been almost pristine in avoiding COVID prior to mm-hmm. that. But then, of course, all your distancing goes out the window when everybody's trying to hunker down. Right. And everybody's going home trying to get where they have power so that happens then you schedule houston to to replace a game and then you have a covid breakout then you get to finally play a couple games revolving door of players on the offensive defensive lines as a result and then you're scheduled to play oklahoma state after a week off and it happens again So the good news is there probably won't be another cancellation because you're running out of people to infect. (laughs) But the bad news is you've basically had an entire bowl layoff. So, (laughs) yeah, it's been a rough year for y'all in terms of that. But, uh, you know, same thing for Texas. Texas can say maybe maybe it would have been a good thing if COVID had taken a few games off the schedule. And one of the reasons I really do enjoy bringing you on and talking to you is, because, well, first off, you know, your X's and O's and stats guys mean you really understand what you're talking about. And, and I really do like the guys who do do cover stats and X's and O's. Like Stats of War was on before you. Uh, Keegan and O was on before that. Guys who understand it. And so you also take a look at Texas. You know Texas. You've been watching Texas. You analyze Texas stats-wise and on the field. So I want to get your thoughts from an outside perspective and a guy who really understands the nitty-gritty of it. What are your thoughts on Tom Herman in the situation in Texas? Because that is the big topic right now for Texas fans. Oh, that is a a very very, loaded question. uh, Yeah, (laughs) it's a a question with a lot of details on it. Uh, As far as this current team, obviously, they're not happy with the win loss record. You've had three close games. You won one of them. Felt like you should have won a second one. And thought you might have been able to come back and get the third one but it it's a difficult situation because you know you've got you got some roster weaknesses you're having to work around um as far as herman overall obviously his seat's pretty hot but you know if he goes on a four game win streak all of a sudden people will be a little more uh accommodating especially if uh, teams like oklahoma and tcu pick up uh, third losses and <laughs> texas can kind of back into the uh, Big 12 title race again. Fall ass backwards into it? Yeah. Hey, as, as long as he gets there, uh, people will be feeling a lot better. It's a lot better to get there 
by those circumstances. Very true. Yeah. You know, uh, but by the same token, uh, this team, they've, they've had a crazy point total in a couple of their games, but honestly, the common perception of the offense and defense is not backed up by the numbers. I mean, the defense is the one actually doing much better compared to what other power teams are doing against the Big 12 teams they faced. And the offense is the one that's generally struggling. I mean, the offense is averaging around 28 yards per drive, which is below average. And the defense is holding teams to, I mean, just under 30 yards per drive, which is better than average. But you're just looking at the field position. I mean, during regulation, I think Texas is starting 67 yards away, which, you know, that's basically eight yards better than a touchback every time. And Which goes a lot to the Sean Jamison. <laughs> yeah. Uh, special teams, turnovers, it all goes in. And then you're also looking at these just incredibly long games. I mean, against Oklahoma, granted you had four overtimes skewing it, but Texas had 19 possessions. Oklahoma had 18. Texas had 16. Tech had 17. That, with non-offensive scores, with turnovers and short fields, that is driving that point total up. Because, you know, a typical game will have, like, around 11 to 13 possessions. You're adding effectively another third on that in terms of what you're averaging that season, this season that the uh, defense is having to face. Now, obviously, there's some issues with the defense on tackling. There's some issues with them in terms of filling in a couple gaps in the run game. They've got to figure out a way to keep teams from picking on the middle linebacker in coverage. But overall, the defense has outperformed the offense, unless you're looking in like the last part of the Tech and OU game where the offense got in two-minute mode and did really well. But at the same time, you're, that's a very limited sample, and the rest of those games was really struggling. Let's take a look at it from a bird's-eye view and then a really nitty-gritty point of view. Why is Texas struggling so much on offense, and where should you put the blame? Let's start with like the really nitty-gritty. Where is it that, in your eyes, if you fix this and this, it works? Well, I don't think Sam Ellinger all of a sudden became a bad quarterback. He's a good quarterback. He's one of the best ones in the Big 12. Even the biggest haters would probably be forced to admit that he'd start for at worst half the conference and you know you're you're realistically talking somebody that's more likely in the top three of the conference in a pessimistic view um so he's still good you know Cosme's good but the offensive line really has been inconsistent struggled I mean sliding Kerstetter inside may have solidified center but the right side of that offensive line then angle out if at least from what I've seen on film, they've struggled a bit. The outside receivers have really struggled to beat single coverage. They really haven't shown much. So from there, you're not generating a lot of big plays. The explosive plays really haven't been there as a percentage of your total plays, particularly in the air. Um, outside of a couple that they were able to scheme against TCU with the running back joining four verticals and TCU not picking it up or the smash delay that Eagles scored on where they were really good designs. They really haven't been able to hit the big play in the passing game. And then the offensive line is really limiting the running game. So then you're trying to see what you can do with misdirection and mesh and some other concepts with your slot receivers and your tight ends. 
and you're really trying to see how far Sam Ellinger can carry you, which in year four of Herman shouldn't be the case. Yeah, and I really want to push you on that. I want to push you on what you just said because you and I, we had a very extensive talk before we actually started the show. I want to hear your thoughts on that because you made some really good points. What are your thoughts, again, on Tom Herman in year four? Well, not to go all Urban Meyer here, but there's some link in the chain that's broken because Texas is landing classes that are highly rated. They may not be the number one class in the country. Okay. But they're highly rated enough that these problems should not be occurring in an offensively talented state like Texas when you have one of the first mouths at the table. Either your evaluation's wrong, or your strength and conditioning's wrong, or your player development's wrong, or your scheme's wrong. And I, I don't necessarily think a guy that was successful at Ohio State, Rice, and Iowa State as head coach, or Yurchich, who was successful at a number of stops, including Oklahoma State and Ohio State, or Chris Ash, or before him, Todd Orlando. I don't think any of them are the scheme problems. So something's happening with your identification of talent, or you're developing that talent. And somewhere along that line, the chain is broken somewhere. And also, let's be honest, uh, Herman, he had two years as a head coach at Houston, and when he was there... I think his second year there, he had like five guys he actually recruited in starting roles. He didn't have a whole lot of time there to win with his guys. He won with Tony Levine's players. When Texas went to the Big 12 title game in 2018, he got Sam Ellinger, he got Keontae Ingram, he got Caden Stearns, he got a couple others, but in large part, the nucleus of that roster was Charlie Strong's players. So this is a bit of uncharted territory for the guy. And I'm not saying it's going to pan out or not pan out long term for him. But at the very least, it's a question. Because that's one of the tougher things about a head coach. It's not enough to get somebody that can sign a high-rated class. It's not enough to have somebody that can do X's and O's. I mean, everybody made the joke about Mac Brown being a CEO coach. But in terms of managing your locker room, Whenever something comes up that's an issue that could split your locker room, how do you handle it? What about your coach's room? What about your identification of which coaches to hire, which coaches to retain, or how to handle disputes between them? There's a lot more that goes into it. And, you know, when a guy's only got two years as the head guy prior to taking the job, there's always the risk that it could go the other way. And, Back when uh, Baylor was looking like the best job in Texas to open up in 2016, back shortly after the Notre Dame game for Texas, when things were looking really up in Austin, there were a lot of talk on the Baylor boards about possibly hiring Herman. And one of the reservations I had was the same reservation I had when A&M hired Sumlin, is he hasn't won with his own guys. He inherited a team with a lot of talent. And he did take him to another step. But is that necessarily going to translate to the new job? And I think for a couple of years, it can. But after that, you're largely on your own. It's one of the reasons I loved the Chris Kleiman hire at Kansas State. He'd not only won over a long time, he'd won over multiple recruiting cycles at a job that was very similar to the one he was taking over in terms of recruiting footprint. Right. And you know, I've been talking about this since Tom Herman 
came to Texas. Tom Herman is a young coach that Texas fans are going to have to watch grow. I talked about it before our Oklahoma show. And Scipio Tex, I believe he put this on Inside Texas. I found it off, off their site. But he put out an article that showed Texas's hires and how many years of head coaching experience they had before they came to Texas. And there are only two coaches that have had more than five years of experience coaching college football, which means recruiting and building your own team. And that is Dana Bible. I don't remember when they hired him. What was that, back in 1930s? And Mac Brown. Between then and up until now, two of their 10 coaches in the history of Texas since Dana Bible have had more than five years of head coaching experience. You know, and to your point, Tom Herman last year after playing Baylor said, well, we need to get more speed guys like Baylor had, what Matt Rule built. And because Nat Rule knew what he was doing. He knew how to build his you know how to build his program. He knew how to, what type of players to bring in. And then Tom Herman looks at that and is like, oh, wow, look at that. I should do that in year three of being a head coach, really year five of being a head coach. He's figure, he figured it out. Right, and Rule kind of adapted that mindset when he was at Temple, and he's like, all right, we've got Penn State on the schedule. They're going to get first pick over us. How do we level the playing field? And they basically said, we want guys with NFL measurables that we also like their tape. Like there was a story on our board that they wouldn't offer a particular offensive line recruit until they got measurement on exactly how long his arms were to give you an idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And (laughs) another running joke on our board is, all right, has UTEP offered? Because apparently, (laughs) apparently uh, one of the players that they just loved the NFL upside of the safety and they just loved his film. So the perfect, their kind of guy he had zero offers when Baylor offered, but I think UTEP might have offered. So it's just become a running gag is, wait, has UTEP offered? You know, right. Because they took it to the extreme. Uh, they didn't care how many stars you had. They cared whether or not they were more athletic. And you look, and it's across the roster now. I mean, Christian Morgan blew the spark test out of the water, and he's 6'1", 205 now. You got JT Woods at safety who's very athletic. Kalen Barnes is a six-foot corner that ran a 10 300 meter. Yeah, And he ran even faster than that, like something like 10.04. I think it was wind-aided, so it technically didn't count, but just gives you an idea how fast the guy is. And you've got a number of those guys up and down the roster on both sides of the ball. I mean, you got Tristan Ebner, who was 4.40 coming out of high school, verified. Everywhere, you've got these high upside guys, and it's it's a bet that you can develop them. Because if you don't, all of a sudden you become the, all right, doesn't matter how big you are. You need people that actually want to play, you know, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I think they've done a good job evaluating and developing them. And we'll see how Aranda does going forward with that. But it's a very distinctly different approach. Right. So then on the other side of of all this, when you look at Texas, what does scary about this Texas team? Is there anything, you know, after watching those last two weeks, that does scare you or you really jumps off the page or the film when you're watching them? Well, as with most years, Texas is going to be one of the most athletic teams in the conference. I mean, defensively, they're playing a four, three right now. A lot of those guys were recruited for three, four, so it's not a perfect fit, but I mean, Keandra Coburn at nose tackle is going to be tough to move. You've got Osai off the edge. who's a really good pass rusher. Take one Graham, 
he's got those long arms like a lot of three four ends would have but he's quick for his size he's going to be a challenge you've got guys in the secondary that can single cover you've got some really good power backs that on contact can fight for extra yards and then of course ellinger himself is not only fitting that mold as a runner but also he's one of the best quarterbacks you're going to see all year there's a lot that you have to worry about they give you a lot of different things formationally they give you a lot of different things play call wise they certainly have their limitations especially by texas standards but by the same token it's not going to be an easy game and you know baylor is coming in with very little practice time because you know that covid thing right and <laughs> yeah that there's only COVID thing. There's only so much uh, you can do to get yourself sharp and ready to play. And against a team as athletic as Texas, that could be a really difficult combination to overcome. Yeah, well, I mean, let's go ahead and get into the Baylor stuff now. I mean, you've been kind of edging your way over there. I'll go ahead and just jump right in. So far, this Baylor team has had about 40 players test positive so far. It's caused them to cancel three of the five games they've had this season. And along with those games, Baylor's obviously missed quite a few practices. And on top of that, Baylor has lost a lot of personnel from last year's 11-3 team, 11-win team, uh, along with losing Matt Rule and his entire staff. So I know that you really haven't been able to see much of what Dave Aranda has brought to the Baylor program on the field. So let's start off with, again, a general bird's-eye view here. What has been the noticeable difference of when covering this Aranda program versus the rule program? Well, other than them not actually being on the field and having yet <laughs> to even see your full offensive and defensive line on the field at the same time, uh, it's just been a little bit different approach schematically on both sides of the ball. On offense, rule wanted to run the ball so much that his tight end tended to be much more of a block first guy extra tackle that could occasionally go out on a route. And that didn't, that's not to say that they didn't use spread concepts as well, but they weren't decidedly spread the way that Fedora, that the way Larry Fedora would be where Fedora, he doesn't care what you do. He wants, he wants to take what you're giving him. So if that means he runs outside zone 60 times, he's going to run it 60 times. If that means he's going to run power 60 times, he'll do it. If it means he's throwing, short routes 60 times or if he's throwing deep 60 times whatever you're giving him based on alignment and play call path of least resistance he's going there which is a decided departure from rule um, and then defensively you're abandoning the three down dime where you're really trusting your defensive line to do everything with heavy five techniques and a nose tackle you're abandoning that and you're going much more to a Dave Aranda style hybrid 3-4 where you have a true kind of jack linebacker that can drop in coverage, be that extra pass rusher. You're doing a lot more schematically with creepers and simulated pressures where you're doing a lot of different things, taking advantage of how versatile your linebacker personnel are. And you're finding unique and different ways to dictate protections and attack them with varied four-man pressures you might show six get them to switch to a slide protection and then you're only bringing four either sending the four inside guys to try and get somebody free in the middle or sending the four outside guys which gets you one-on-one matchups with the back and the right tackle which are favorable for your guys and you're still able to play base coverages behind it 
in a nutshell, that's what they're doing. Uh, it's very multiple on defense, both in fronts and coverages. Offense, it's much more of your traditional spread-style Big 12 offense. Yeah, I mean, Texas fans are a little familiar with what Larry Fedora brings to the field, but it will be different since now he has full control of this offense at Baylor. Let's go ahead and look at somebody who Texas fans are very familiar with because they are always reminded, hey, they didn't offer this kid you know, when they had already offered Sam Ellinger, Charlie Brewer. But despite being very injury-prone, Charlie Brewer is still one of the most outstanding veteran quarterbacks in this year's group of quarterbacks. It's kind of been an up-and-down year for him, probably because of the people around him, the whole COVID stuff. But I do want to know, what does he do so well and what makes him so special that he can beat teams? And on the flip side of that, where does he get beat? Well, when I look at quarterbacks in general, I, I remember they were interviewing Mike Leach on his criteria for quarterbacks, and Leach was answering in kind of his dry style. Well, well, first you want a guy that makes good decisions and is accurate and has good feet. Those are the essential things. Uh, and then after that, if you can get somebody with a strong arm or who can run a lot, that's just that's just gravy, you know. And from there, Brewer fits the first criteria. He can buy time in the pocket and create on his own if he has to in terms of mobility. He is generally a very accurate passer when he has time to set his feet and when he can know where he's going with the ball. And he generally makes good decisions. He, I mean, every quarterback's going to have times where he throws it ill-advised. I mean, that even happened with Colt McCoy, who a lot of Longhorns would say is likely their best quarterback is a pure passer mm-hmm. in the last decade or so. Yeah. You know, so he fits those criteria. He doesn't have the biggest arm and when he gets hurt, it becomes really limiting. Um, jury's out on exactly how injured he is right now, because towards the end of last year, he got pretty dinged up. He might've been fighting a shoulder, really couldn't drive the ball the way he had been prior. And on top of that, three concussions in three years. Yes. On David Ash level here. Right. That's also a major concern. And then this year, I think he had like a leg injury against Kansas. He didn't seem to be 100% against West Virginia. But then again, his protection was pretty terrible in that game because guys were missing assignments. In addition to just getting beat by the Stills brothers, you had twice slide protections, including a maximum protection. Let a nose tackle come free. (laughs) <laughs> to sack Brewer. There, there's nothing you can do on a maximum protection where three guys are running deep and a 300-pounder is turned loose in your lap. You know, um, yeah. So he's a good quarterback, very tough guy, very good leader. Brought Baylor back a ton. And, you know, you hope he's healthy. I think he's got to be your starter until you see something that makes you think he's physically below a certain threshold you need to be effective. You know, and we'll see exactly what condition he's in when he trots out in Austin because it's been three weeks. So whatever might have been bothering him earlier this year might have been healed. But or is it something more long lasting? Who knows? And we're all kind of wait and see mode on that. But he's a he's a capable quarterback, smart quarterback, accurate, tough as anything. And uh, I'm pretty sure this one's going to mean a lot to him based on what the announcers will never let anyone forget who watches a <laughs> Baylor Texas game. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty pretty accurate. I think one of the reasons he's had a down year too is because 
Well, the wide receiver core for Baylor is, is decent with guys like RJ Sneed, Tyquan Thornton, Josh Fleeks, and Gavin Holmes. I'm probably missing somebody here. It seems like they really haven't been able to get separation in their routes or anything, right? It's always Charlie Brewer creating something for them or escaping the pocket or whatever he does, right? It seems right. like the majority of their production, the air has come out of the backfield. Well, one, you're also dealing with two games, one in which you went up to West Virginia and the offensive line had had basically no practice time together due to COVID going against one of the best defensive lines in the big 12. And you also had a game against Kansas where three offensive line starters were out. So that's Mm -hmm. going to impact things to a certain degree, but also, yes, they absolutely missed Denzel Mims the same way Texas misses Devin Duvernay and Colin Johnson. Right. You know, you have proven talents there and the others you're waiting to kind of see when they're going to take that next step. So that's a work in progress. You've got a ton of guys at that receiver position that can absolutely fly. So, I mean, if you can get them the ball, big plays are there to be made. And to be fair, Sneed made a couple plays and Fleeks made a couple big plays against West Virginia that really got them in that game. But, yeah, they need to they need to see that step up. But part of that's also Fedora is much more on the quick game than the prior coaching staff was so you're not going to see as many long plays as a percentage than you did before because prior to brewer getting hurt last year baylor was one of the best in terms of 20 plus play percentage in the entire country last year it's just it was such a defensive oriented team it kind of flew under the radar but you were able to set things up you were able to deliver i mean i think they beat oklahoma state last year just bombing them with big plays and that made a huge difference in stillwater so I think there's a little bit of scheme change, a little bit of offensive line, a little bit of some of the stuff Brewer's been having nag him a little bit injury-wise. And we'll see exactly how much those different factors improve or stay the same or regress against Texas. Well, again, you keep on bringing up this offensive line for Baylor. It seems like you keep on bringing up this offensive line for Baylor and making that as one of the bigger reasons that this team has been having trouble. But when you look at them, it looks like a group of players that should be doing well. Again, you look at the stats, seven sacks over two games. What was that? Six against West Virginia. Again, yeah, Kenny Stills, the Stills brothers are just insane. You know, three yards per carry in the run game, and you're also going against Kansas. It seems like something's off there, and is it really the issue of not enough time to gel and not having consistent personnel, or is there something else there? Where on the film does the issue lie? The way I see it right now, I believe it's a lot more of time to gel. I mean, you've got situations where guys, they ran a power quarterback read against West Virginia, both the guys blocking down and the guy pulling left Darius Stills unblocked. So Brewer has to keep on his read, and he's met there with one of the best defensive linemen in the Big 12 completely unblocked. That's not a talent thing. That's a, oh, wow, you really haven't practiced this kind of thing. you know. And mm. athletically, the talent should be there. Xavier Newman's played pretty well over the last basically three, four years. He was one of those freshmen that came in in Rule's first year, and he's been playing ever since. Connor Galvin's been a reliable tackle for them the last couple years. 
You've got Khalil Keith, who's a high upside guard. You've got a Juco offensive guard named Mose Jeffrey. Blake Bettier was a starter last year. Casey Phillips was a starter last year. You added an all Pac-12 tackle, Jake Burton, in the offseason when Pac-12 looked like they weren't going to play. You've got guys that should be able to play much better than they have so far. And I expect we'll see that over the final part of the season. It's just until they actually get reps together, it's going to be a work in progress. Yeah, it seems like that's the way for a lot of different teams coming into the season is offensive lines aren't looking as good. Now, it's not an excuse for Texas. Texas has had time to gel over the past years, but it seems like across the league, offensive line and NCAA offensive line play hasn't been as great. And same thing with defensive line. The big boys are just have a little bit of trouble with not having the conditioning and time to gel uh, that you usually get in the off season. Right. And I mean, you look at the offensive line they finished the year with, they were not an elite offensive line, but they were serviceable at the very worst. You returned four starters from there and you add an all pack 12 <laughs> tackle to that showing up one of your weaker positions, you should be marketably better. Mm -hmm. And I think they'll eventually get there, but the lack of any spring ball, the lack of being able to actually have the same guys on the field or on the practice field for that matter. I mean, they were missing three starters against Kansas. They finally got everyone back against West Virginia, but those guys hadn't practiced together, which really, really hamstrung them in addition to going against the stills brothers who were among the very best we'll see in the big 12 this year you know so it's been an adventure on the offensive line but conversely i think the defensive lines played outstanding despite being pretty short-handed yeah i think baylor is in sort of a similar position as texas is in where but a lot on steroids where texas had to bring in a ton of new coaches change philosophies on offense and defense but then had the whole coronavirus thing happen, which means that your players really can't get a hold of your philosophies, especially when you're trying to change your tackling philosophy. It's like I explained it to you before the show, and I've explained it on the show multiple times, changing your grip and swing in golf before you go play a tournament, you're not going to do well in that tournament. That's where Texas is, and that's the same thing with Baylor. They they kind of changed they changed philosophies on offense, changed entire the entire staff, lost a bunch of players, and then they had coronavirus, not able to practice and play. It's been really difficult for this offense to get going. So if you're Chris Ash, the Texas defensive coordinator, looking to at looking at this Baylor offense that is maybe limping into this game, how do you make sure that they do not wake up versus Texas? Well, if I'm Chris Ash, what I've seen from him on film is Texas has gone very similar to what Ohio State's done over the last year, where they're just going to a very simplistic but effective scheme on defense. They're going to get really good at a couple base things. Uh, obviously, you have adjustments built off that. Obviously, you have the minimum necessary variation in order to just keep people from preying on you. But it's a very simplistic, very do-what-we-do kind of defense. Make your opponent earn it. Don't be out of position. And I think that translates well to this matchup if Baylor's offensive line is as poor as it's been. You know, if Baylor gets a lot better performance from their offensive line, they can start moving people in the run game. All of a sudden, the bets are off, and <laughs> it becomes a very different game. But until Baylor proves that, if I'm Chris Ash, I'm going to sit back in your base quarters coverages 
with your safeties a lot deeper than many of the Big 12 teams that play quarters. And I'm going to make Baylor show that they can block me repeatedly. I'm going to make Brewer show that he can hit certain throws. And I am going to do everything I can to try and make them earn it. Lean on the defense that's actually been a lot better than the scores they've given up, mainly due to field position, drive count, and turnovers. And from there, you know, that that seems like the better bet because the biggest threat that Baylor poses to teams in the Big 12 until that offensive line develops is the running backs and the receivers. If you took the running back rooms and receiver rooms for all the Big 12 offenses and you turned it into a 4 by 100 relay, <laughs> I don't know if Baylor would win gold on both of them, but they definitely place. That's something that's going to be a big challenge because, you know, Texas had a play against Tech where they, I think they averaged like a, a yard and a half yards per carry out of their tailbacks outside that play. But three missed tackles and Sir Roderick Thompson is gone. Treston Ebner and John Lovett, in addition to being really good running backs, are very effective out of the backfield. I mean, Treston Ebner helped turn around the Big 12 title game against OU, running up the seam out of the backfield and just outraced the entire Sooner defense. He did he caught like a flat pass against TCU as a freshman and outran their defense. And I think Vanderbilt still hadn't caught up to what he did to them on a Texas route. And, you know, you've got the guys to really just take the top off the defense or take a short pass and make something big happen. So that's, if I'm Chris Ash, that's what I want to avoid at all costs. I don't want anything cheap because those receivers and those backs can absolutely do that to you if you let them. Give me a line for how many sacks Texas should have with Joseph Osai and Keandre Coburn on this defensive line against this Baylor team who hasn't really practiced or has practiced but hasn't really played and has a revolving door of offensive linemen. If I'm a Texas fan, how many sacks should I expect before I get angry? Well, I wouldn't get angry based on sacks. You're really going to want to look at stops because – what typically happens when a team has enough athleticism to avoid certain mistakes is they overcorrect in the following game. You know, Baylor made so many ridiculous mistakes against West Virginia up front in terms of protection. I mean, letting guys up the A gap uncontested, a running back completely whiffing on a slide protection and Brewers on the ground as a post route's coming open. Just little things. I can guarantee you both with tactics and with offensive linemen just really focusing in on what their assignments are, it's not going to be that easy. They'll probably get home a couple times, but I, I wouldn't base your expectations for this on sacks. You really need to be looking at stops just because, one, I think Baylor's going to play better on the offensive line than they did again against West Virginia. And keep in mind, the only sack they gave up against Kansas was on a rollout when they blitzed a nickelback off the backside edge and he ran down Brewer. That wasn't on the offensive line. you know. So I don't think it's necessarily going to be a sack thing. And then also, I think Chris Ash is smart enough not to just go crazy with different pass rush looks. I think he's going to make this really fast skill group work their way down the field and execute over and over again and really make that offensive line show it can reliably perform. Good point. Yeah, you probably want to make this team who hasn't really been able to gel execute right the team that's lost a lot execute and execute and execute and if they can execute at a high rate then you know hat tip right and i mean whenever a team has such a bad game in a certain phase 
they're going to work on it. Like the week before Baylor played Kansas, Kansas turned it over three times against Coastal Carolina in the first half. Going in, expecting 30% of Kansas's drives, because I think they only had 10 against Coastal Carolina because Coastal runs the option. You've got you, – that was not going to be a reasonable expectation going in. Kansas was going to take five sacks before they turned the ball over because that's what got them beat the week before. You know, you've got to think both tactics and in terms of focusing on it, your opponent's going to do a lot better job than what burned them before. Right, right. Let's go ahead and switch to the other side of the ball here and look at the defense. You already talked about Dave Aranda's 3-4 brand that he's bringing over. How has he worked the players that he has right now into that? And we'll start with the defensive line here because Baylor lost probably the best defensive line in the conference last year, maybe in Baylor history. Correct me if I'm wrong there. And from last year's crew, I mean, they tallied 20 sacks, over 20 sacks, over 40 tackles for losses. How are they replacing these guys, and how are the replacements, how have they been? Well, the replacements have been surprisingly good, and I'll caution you on the best in Baylor history thing. Uh, Grant Taft had some dudes, and there are some Santana Dotsons in the past that would uh, take issue with that, I'm almost certain. But, uh, you know, you've you lost three really productive guys up front. Getting back to rules recruiting philosophy, you've got a lot of very lengthy guys that have seen enough off-seasons in the weight room that are athletic that can do a lot for you. And even without Baylor's top two interior guys at nose and at defensive tackle, they haven't even played in the game yet. I mean, Gabe Hall and GD Obanaya have been hurt or out with COVID or some combination of it. And then... Their starter at field defensive end, their heaviest of the two ends, T.J. Franklin, he played against Kansas, then he had to miss against West Virginia. Even with that, the defense has played outstanding against those teams. Right. I was going to say that grad transfer guy, William Bradley King, coming off the edge in that spot, looked pretty good. Yeah, he's technically a jack linebacker for him. But is he? He is, but... Part of what the confusion is is Aranda runs two base fronts. Oh, he, he has his Jack, base three right. four. He has his base three four. But what they'll do is he calls it peso. Something along. I think he may. I think it originally started as a joke about exchange rates between an American nickel and a Mexican peso <laughs> in terms of currency. But effectively, it's an alternate nickel formation where you're replacing that field defensive end with a second jack linebacker. Mm -hmm. And against West Virginia, with so many defensive linemen out, you had to do that. So William Bradley King, the bigger of your uh, jack linebackers that you still had, because they were also missing their starting jack for that game. They certainly caught me there, because he's big number 99 coming off the edge every every play. Yeah, I thought he was for sure a defensive end, but you're right. Yeah, he's the the fourth linebacker. In a 4-3, he'd be a defensive end. But, uh, you know, you got those two guys and you've got your base nickel set that they've got. I mean, Baylor's done really well with guys like Josh Josh Landry and Cole Maxwell coming off the bench to basically start the first two games. And those are guys that Rule identified as athletic upside that they've developed, and they were reliable starters over the last couple of games. I mean, they're not as impactful as you were expecting to have with the other two guys. 
but they've been very good. And I mean, even a couple of your depth guys at both positions have been out over those games. And you've got Ryan Miller who came in and was reliable. They've even had Braden Utley, who's a walk on, have to play serious minutes on the interior. And they played well against those teams. I think in overtime, when West Virginia finally got a touchdown after a long period without, their last three plays, they were basically running at the fifth string Jack linebacker, who's normally playing Mike, because Baylor was that depleted on defense. So right. to say that, right. you know, it's it's been an adventure with who you actually have, but the guys you have have a lot of upside, and they've developed enough of them that Baylor's got a solid defensive line. I don't think any of the guys individually, or James Lynch, for instance, and I don't think any of the noses could be that three-forward nose tackle space eater the way Bravion Roy was. But they've got guys that fit really well with what Aranda wants to do, and I think I think it'll end up paying pretty good dividends this year. It's just when can we actually see them all on the field? Yeah, uh, that defense has been a sur- happy little surprise for Baylor fans. Unlike Texas, the linebacker has not really been a problem for Baylor's defense. In fact, Terrell Bernard may be one of the best linebackers in the Big 12. How has Aranda deployed this linebacker unit so effectively this year? Well, the way he aligns his linebackers, he's he and defensive coordinator Ron Roberts, who used to be Aranda's mentor, who Aranda hired, because they both do effectively the same style of defense. They've deployed these linebackers. You got your Jack linebacker, who's your more pass rush, drop into coverage specialist on the boundary side edge. You got your star, who's your de facto nickel linebacker. You've got your Will and your Mike as the two inside backers. They flip the Will and the Mike with the passing strength. So Terrell Bernard, who's the starter at Will, will almost always be the passing strength. Whereas Dylan Doyle, the Iowa transfer who started for Iowa last year, he is the guy that's typically going to be away from the passing strength and more often in the run fit if there's a formation that takes a backer out of it. And with Terrell Bernard, you're talking about a guy that's very experienced, very smart, very laterally quick, doesn't take false steps, knows how to diagnose what's going on, gets there very quick because of it. Dylan Doyle's a reliable Iowa-style middle linebacker where he knows how to fit against the run, very physical, very tough, very smart. At Jack, you've got a number of individuals. You've got Ashton Logan, who's the normal starter there, who's reliable in coverage, reliable in run defense, moves really well, and he's 6'1", 238. You got grad transfer William Bradley King. He's a guy that's 6'4", 250, and runs well, and he's more your traditional pass rusher. He's the guy that was basically having to play D-end in that peso set against West Virginia just due to who you had available. And then you've got a couple high upside guys behind him and Tyrone Brown and Victor Obi, who got some significant time against both Kansas and West Virginia. Obi's an interesting one. He, he ran faster than a four seven coming out of high school. He's six five two thirty. He's got longer arms than Sean Oakman, 124 inch broad jump. He is like the definition of a guy that a couple years from now, if rules development philosophy works out, that's an NFL caliber measurable guy right obviously with that there's always a boomer bust potential but he's a guy that a lot of people are excited about long term and then you got matt jones is one of the more flexible guys on the roster at linebacker he can play jack he can play mike he can play will 
He's 6'3", 233, runs well, physical. He's a guy that can fit a number of spots for you. And then at star, you've got the only guy to stay committed to Baylor in the 2017 class after everybody decommitted with the coaching change back then. Jalen Petrie is the starter there. He's developed into a really reliable player for you. He's six foot, 200, runs well, covers well, fits the run well. And then you've got walk-on Jaron McVeigh, who started actually in 2017 and has been a reliable rotation guy for the last few years. He's a little undersized, but he gives you a little more speed and coverage than Petrie does. And between that group, you've got a number of guys that can do a lot of different things for you. And it's something that fits very well with what Aranda and Roberts want to do, because as I mentioned earlier, they're all about finding creative ways to use four guys to get pressure. They'll threaten you with six or they'll threaten you with five. They'll only bring four. They'll bring people from unusual angles and they'll run a lot of their different base coverages behind it. So whereas a lot of teams will do fire zones where you're bringing five guys, you're playing three deep over the top and two guys underneath. That is a little less precise, which means if somebody doesn't pick something up right or if they get a clean pass off on you and they're running free through, free through your secondary, it's a lot less sturdy than simulated pressures or creepers. Where creeper, you're not necessarily simulating anything. You're just bringing a different fourth rusher from a number of spots. Whereas simulated pressures, you're threatening them with the potential for five or six, and then you're only bringing four. And, but you're doing it in a unique way. So you you can figure out, all right, if I show them five up on the offensive line before the snap, we'll know they check to this protection. So I can get that tiny little running back trying to block Terrell Bernard up the A-gap. And that's the story of how Baylor got a safety against Kansas. <laughs> the combo with that front seven, Baylor has had a nice mix of pure athleticism and and veterans in that secondary, you know, the front seven is the real reason that they're doing so well, but that, that secondary has been a nice little cherry on top, especially with that corner Riley Tejada, who is a pretty darn good senior, uh, senior veteran. And then, as you said, the two safeties, JT Woods and Morgan Christian have just had insane spark scores. Uh, what have you seen so far from this group and what do you expect out of them in this game? Well, I think, when you're looking at Baylor secondary, the athleticism just jumps out at you. I mean, right. you got Kalen Barnes with his track times, and he's six foot. Raleigh Tejada is really fast and is a reliable corner for him starting for last year, and I think even 2018 as well. Mark Milton has had to play in place of Barnes over the last couple of weeks a little bit. He's a six one guy that runs really well. And at safety, when Christian Morgan got called for targeting against Kansas, true freshman Devin Neal, who's just off the charts athletic, maybe even more so than Morgan came in and played pretty well. I mean, made a couple freshman mistakes. You've got a number of guys there um, that they're still adjusting to the new scheme. And I think, I think they'll translate well, but I think it's going to take time to get really sharp at it. I mean, that's, that's anybody that's a new starter. I mean, Texas is dealing with it to a certain extent with some of the guys in the secondary that are new to starting for them. And I think that's going to be something that long-term, I think Baylor will have a pretty good group. Because you're not dealing with too many guys that are seniors right now. You're going to have a lot of these guys back. And I think you're going to end up in a good spot. I don't worry about Baylor matching up individually in coverage. At least not after I wouldn't. Not with this Texas wide receiver core. <laughs> well, 
I wasn't necessarily talking about Texas alone, but right. just in general, I feel like he's got a number of guys that can do a lot of different things for him, which is night and day different than what he walked than what his predecessor walked into in 2017, where you had a number of point guard size safeties that didn't really run all that well that you were having to construct a defense around. Let's tie this all into a nice little bow here. On the other side of the ball, Texas's offense has, you know, they've been pretty boomer bust. I think they're probably going to be a lot more uh, explosive coming to this game, focusing on what they've done right <laughs> in the last two minutes of the last two games. At least that's what we're hearing. So where do you expect this side of the ball to battle it out? And what is the key to that win for either side of the ball? Well, I think Baylor is going to take some chances with those corners against those outside receivers. Mm -hmm. Make them prove that they can win. Because you definitely want to get an extra guy against Ellinger if you can, just to limit how much numbers would get you beat in the run game. Um but also, projecting this really depends on who do you actually have. Just because Baylor has enough to actually play this week doesn't mean they'll have all their guys. Right, and Baylor is not one of the teams that kind of gives out who has what. Right, and then also, in the age of COVID, you're also dealing with, well, do we hand out sensitive medical in information? I mean, it's one thing to say somebody's out sick when they have like the common cold and you know they're going to be just fine, but mm-hmm. during a pandemic, that takes on a completely different tack. Right. Um, you know, so it, it depends on who they have, but assuming they're at full strength, I would think Baylor would do what they could to limit the run, try and make sure that Ellinger's n- numerical advantage in the box doesn't beat you, and then really take some chances with those receivers on the outside because you've got safeties that are big enough to match up against some of those big tight ends that Texas likes to use. They went into 12 personnel a number of times over the couple games that I saw. And, you know, I mean, I think if one of the touchdowns they had against TCU to Epps, I think TCU's like 5-8 weak safety was like matched on him, which was just not fair. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't think you're going to have quite that size disparity. I mean, the tight ends would be bigger, but I feel like Baylor's got the size to do a little better matching up against them. So I think Baylor can take some chances in coverage, make Texas prove that they can burn them in that regard. Um, with Texas, you've got to deal with mesh sit where it's a lot of the, it's a lot like how Chip Kelly runs mesh where you not only have the guys crisscrossing at five yards, but you got somebody sitting at like eight to 10 yards kind of over the middle where you can stretch out zones that way or hit deeper routes behind it. I saw them break out the old 49er version of drive using their slots to try and crisscross TCU's matchup coverages, you know, and then, You've got to be prepared for what uh, Herman and Yurchich do formationally. I mean, as I mentioned before, a couple of those long plays against TCU where they hit uh, Keontae Ingram out of the backfield, where yeah, they faked are, the Jets. Those were generated big plays by good play call and good formation. Yeah, you fake the jet sweep and you get somebody conflicted. And you effectively have four verticals once everything dispels. Mm-hmm. But they didn't pick up the running back and you get a 52 yard play out of it. And then you have, you set up the smash route, but you have a little delayed slant by uh, Eagles. And after TCU safety peeled off to help with the corner route, all of a sudden Eagles is on his own. Um, so you got to watch out for that. I think both defenses will have a pretty good day. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think Texas has. I, I haven't been able to stomach rewatching the OU game personally, but watching the TCU game, watching Texas Tech, I'm sure watching Oklahoma without the drops, Texas has actually been able to manufacture some good production. I would agree. Yeah, probably test out the wide receivers outside and see what they can do, really, and try to limit Texas in the run game because, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, it doesn't really look so against West Virginia, but West Virginia doesn't have the great run game that they had, was it, two years ago. It seems like Baylor is a little iffy against the run. Am I right or wrong there? I don't know if I would necessarily say iffy. Um, Just with Baylor and everything, I mean, Kansas had like three carries that went for like 55 yards. Outside of that, they were like three and a half yards per carry. West Virginia hit a couple one couple for like 25 yards, 19 yards. Outside of that, it was 3.3 yards per carry. Mm-hmm. And that's playing shorthanded. You know, so on one hand, yeah, those teams aren't that good. On the other hand, yeah, well, we don't have all our guys. So it's a bit of an unknown, but generally speaking, having seen what I've seen from the individual personnel you expect to have, I think Baylor will at at worst be solid in run defense. I don't think they're going to be like dominant or anything, but I think I think the defensive line personnel will allow them to be pretty solid. Right, but I don't trust these wide receivers to really make anything on the outside, especially against some of these more athletic cornerbacks and safeties. So I think maybe you have to start trying to run it or you have to create something up front. You have to get some sort of a run game to win anything really in football. And it seems like that's the one place that Texas should probably attack Baylor in this game. But on the other side is Texas having their own running game issues, you know, outside of Sam Ellinger, right? Sam Ellinger has had 282 yards of Texas's 559 yards in Big 12 play. So that's over half of Texas rushing yards, but only 42% of the carries. Outside of Sam, Texas is averaging 2.7 yards per carry in Big 12 play. You know, I'm checking out UTEP because UTEP's a glorified FCS team at this point. Right. I mean, the thing is with Texas's run game, and part of this is in the stats preview I did, I like to take out the long runs because they tend to skew the average because a median run in college football is three yards. If you have a 40-yard run, that's going to skew your yards per carry pretty significantly. Right. You know, so if it's much longer than 20 or high teens, that's just going to skew you from what you're doing down to down. Generally speaking, Texas is going to have a one run for like high 20s yards. And other than that, they're below four yards a carry, which is generally what your opposing defenses have given up. Ellinger's runs that aren't sacks, however, even without the two runs or so that he has for almost 50 yards a game, even without that, he's over four yards a carry. Yeah, he's incredible. You know, so he he's definitely doing what he can to help you out. Um, you know, but I mean, Oklahoma was really able to bottle up the run game. And I think Baylor's definitely going to look at that tape just because of how well they were able to limit the run. And they were the team that was really able to pressure Ellinger more than the rest of them. Yeah, it seems like Grinch has this team's number for some reason. Or at the very least, he's got the protection down. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this game, when I look at it, I think the defenses are a little more athletically are athletic enough to give the offenses problems with where they're weak. 
Baylor's inexperience and lack of cohesion on the offensive line going against the high upside guys that Texas has. Yes, they were recruited for a 3-4 and are now playing a 4-3. So Ajomo and Graham are probably better 3-4 ends than they are in their current positions. And Coburn is probably not as quick as you'd like a 4-3 tackle to be, but good luck moving him off the ball. You know, And they don't think, have that second pass rusher either. Right. You know, so despite the limitations there, I think Baylor's got some things they're going to have to scheme around. And then depending on how, depending on what condition Brewer's in to attack certain coverages. On the other side, Texas has had their issues getting their outside receivers involved. And then I've also heard a rumor that Jake Smith might be out, and we already know Whittington is supposedly out. And Schooler, I also heard a rumor he might be out. Now, that's completely unconfirmed. <laughs> but if that's the case, he might that's have high money me. in the slot. Yeah. You know, but even then, even if it's money, Schooler, and Smith, they're probably your better bet with a lot of the short concepts that Texas likes to run. And I think this game's really going to come down to how well can the respective offensive coordinators manufacture looks for their guys? Because I feel like Fedora, in spite of the offensive line ruining practically all of it, felt like some of the looks he was able to generate for Brewer, he did variations on white cross that had a uh, post wheel on the front side to really run off coverage. He had a couple other things he designed that really played to Brewer's strengths. And I think Texas keeps with a few base coverages and stays pretty simple. You should be able to manufacture some things against those looks. And then conversely, I think as multiple as Baylor is, I think they're, I think there are some opportunities for Texas to use their tight ends, to use their backs, to use those slot receivers, as well as Ellinger's legs to manufacture some looks, even if guys aren't beating press on the outside, even if the run game's not going too many places. And, you know, who's able to make those count when they're called, I think might end up walking away with this one. I definitely favor Texas in this game just because of the practice situation. There's no telling in addition to that, there's no telling who's actually going to be playing for Baylor. You know, if if you ask me about one starter who hasn't missed a game yet, I have no idea if they'll be able to play. <laughs> Just with COVID yeah. contact yeah. tracing. So I'm definitely favoring Texas in this game because of it. But if Baylor's at full strength, I think this is an even matchup to a slight Baylor lean. Yeah, it's it's difficult because you don't know who's playing for either side, really. It's some key positions, but I do think that Texas having probably more consistency in terms of playing and practicing might give them an edge here. Although, you know, I, I said this at the beginning of the show, I am absolutely burned out at this point because expectations are constantly there and never met. So, Man, I think Texas, what, they they probably, I would give Baylor the edge on this one in terms of the plus minus, but I think Texas probably wins by, what, three, maybe? This is not a game that I would bet straight up. Um, <laughs> you know, just just so many unknowns. And, you know, I think 
the line of Texas plus 14 is probably a little generous if Baylor's at all sharp. No, I would agree. But by the same token, if you haven't had practice time, it's very easy for one or two plays to just absolutely tip the scales the wrong way. You know, somebody misses a blocking assignment, Brewer gets hit and it's a fumble return, or somebody blows a coverage or something like that. That can go instantly. But conversely, I think Baylor's got enough speed, particularly on offense, to mitigate some of the big shot plays that Texas does. I mean, you know, TCU ran down Keontae on that really well-designed play, you know, and I think Baylor's also got the speed to hit some really good ones of their own, even on a pretty fast Texas defense, you know, so that side doesn't make me comfortable if I'm betting. <laughs> yeah, no, not, I have not been a comfortable better for Texas if this, this in, for this entire year, if I'm ever betting on Texas, nothing's the only thing I was comfortable with was betting TCU to cover against Texas. That was the only thing. Other than that, I've just been like, I've been off. Yeah, um, I was surprised at that line. I mean, TCU's had their offensive line issues this year, but they've got they got some speed, and they've definitely got a good defense. Yeah. But, Brad, thank you so much for coming on. Why did I say Brad? Because your last name's Brad, I, and I'm tired. Sam Brad. <laughs> Have fun editing. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, where did Brad cover? I was like, oh, that's your last name. What am I? What am I thinking? I'm not thinking. Just don't call me Sam Bradford, and we're good. <laughs> I think I went Brad Samford. That's what I was gonna go with for some reason. Everything got mixed up in my head, and I was like, "Wait, wh- it's, where- a, it's okay, Will Boozer <laughs> <laughs> or Bill Wazer." <Sam>, <laughs> Sam, thank you so much for coming on, man. Uh, can you tell me where we can find you? Obviously, Sickin Three Sixty Five, which is a great website. Everybody who works there is just a wonderful person. But other than that, where can I find you? You can find me on Twitter at Baylor underscore S11. Nice. All right. Well, y'all, I generally bring on people who I would follow outside of Texas information. Sam is one of those guys. So please, if you're on Twitter, go give that guy a follow. He does some excellent work over there. Sam, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. And on that note, y'all, that'll be it for me as well. This has been 4th and 5, your Longhorn Nation podcast. I've been your host, Will Bazer. You guys can find me on Twitter at W-I-L-L-B-A-I-Z-E-R or my writings on texas.thefootballbrainiacs.com. And you guys can also find other episodes and the Pretend We're Football podcast is coming back pretty soon on the Hornscast channel right here, what you're listening to. On that note, thank y'all for listening, and we'll see y'all next week. Welcome.